So it was a very extensive evaluation, but I, I think it illustrates one of the problems in our field. Like, on the one hand, it's very scientific. On the other hand, it's sometimes you just, you don't have a crystal ball. Can't predict future behavior, no matter how good of a psychologist you are. So it comes down to making what I think are the best recommendations that I could give to the court to help them resolve this case. From the cubicle to the lab, the studio to the war room, climbing the corporate ladder or joining a scrappy startup, experience a day in the life of the jobs you want. This is the Experience a Day in the Life podcast. We interview professionals, entrepreneurs, and recent grads about what a day is actually like on the job, hour by hour, or as we like to call it, they're a diddle, spelled A-D-I-T-L, which stands for a day in the life. This podcast will inspire you to gain experience beyond the classroom and launch a career of your own. We're your hosts, Chris DeBeau and Matt Poe. Welcome to part one in the two-part Psych on the Stand series. In this episode, we're going to experience a day in the life, hour by hour, of Dr. Adam Bloom, a forensic psychologist, so you can decide if this is a career you can see yourself doing. Dr. Bloom owns his own practice, Westchester Forensic Psych Services, while also serving as the chief psychologist slash clinic director at a family court mental health program. That means he's in court a lot, giving his expert opinion on cases. Let's get right into his day. It's 6 a.m. and Dr. Bloom is waking up getting ready for his day. He's out the door by 7.50 and arrives at his office in Manhattan by 8.45 for grand rounds with his team. Let's meet Dr. Bloom and learn more about what being a forensic psychologist actually means. I thought forensic psychologists were working with DNA and doing detective work to see who murdered someone and why, but no, it's more law and order, way less CSI. My name is Adam Bloom. I'm a board certified forensic psychologist. I run a business called Westchester Forensic Psych Services. I have an office in Manhattan and Westchester. And what it means to be a forensic psychologist, I don't think many people realize there's many fields of forensics. So anything that involves a legal matter combined with a, another profession becomes forensic. So forensic psychology is where the law intersects with mental health, some sort of combination of those issues. We begin our day with a, a grand rounds. So for me, it's important to know what cases are coming in that day, what the team is doing, what cases I need to supervise for that day, what evaluations I may need to review, edit, co-sign, what cases are in court that day, and just kind of get a general sense of what the uh, workflow is going to look like for the day. So that generally involves about maybe a 45-minute meeting. Adam has a small team of six psychologists, including himself, and three administrative staff to help with the clerical work from the courts. It's now 10 a.m. and Dr. Bloom is interviewing a client for a referral case at his office. This person can be an adult or a child, and depending on the case, they can be conducted in his office, in a court, or in jail. These are one-shot interviews. It may be two hours, maybe four hours. It's until you feel 
you're good to write this report. Remember, th so the thing with uh, what we do is that most psychologists, they just do their thing, right? They work in a hospital or in their private practice. They don't answer to anyone. They keep little notes in their files, but no one ever sees them because they're confidential. Forensic psychology is the opposite, right? The first thing we tell people is that, listen, whatever you've seen on TV about having a therapist and they're not allowed to say what you tell them, that the opposite is true here. Nothing you tell me is private. I'm gonna write down everything you say, everything you tell me may be in my report that goes to court. If it's not in my report that goes to court and one of the attorneys subpoena me to testify in court, they're going to subpoena my file. So whether it's in the report, or whether it's in my notes, or whether they ask me it on the witness stand, it's gonna come up. So nothing you tell me is private. So does, that makes your job a lot harder then, right? To you get, would, you to get would stuff think, out? You would think, right? Yeah. But it's always surprising to me how much people <laughs> tell you. I mean, I tell my kids that if you're ever brought into a police station or a courthouse, I mean, do not talk to them. Unless, <laughs> tell them you want your parent here. Like, do not talk to them because, you know, we're good at what we do. We're good at you know, establishing connections with people. We're good at asking the right questions. We're good at getting information. But if I was interviewing you in, in the courthouse setting, I would have in my head, you know, a script of information that I need to get from you. Like I need information about your background. I need information about your friends, your social activities, how you're doing in school, what you're doing after school who you're hanging out with, what your parents may or may not know about what you're doing, your drug use, your alcohol use, your sexual behavior. And all the while I'm assessing as we're talking your mental status, like are you speaking clearly? Do you seem intelligent to me? Are you trying to be deceptive? There's ways of asking questions in different ways to see if you get, you know, consistent responses. So, you know, one of my techniques is always, you know, well, it's funny, you know, you, you say uh, uh, your mother knows all your friends and where you are after school, but this police report, I don't know, maybe it's wrong, but it says you were out at 3 a.m. In, in a stolen car. Did, did your parents know about that? You know, so, right. you know, you kind of push and you, you ask, you come back to something or there's ways of kind of gauging the, the level of honesty that you're getting. So you're doing that type of evaluation and you're getting all this information you need and and then, you know, you have to focus it around what what is, the, remember I said everything has a referral question, right? So that's, that's what makes it a, there's a legal issue, right? Depending on what kind of case you're doing. The legal issue is what guides your evaluation. So you have to kind of have the clinical skills, but then be able to translate it to the to the legal issues. So in the case of juvenile delinquency, the ultimate issue is what are the needs of this young person for rehabilitation, treatment, or confinement? And you have to balance that with the need to protect the community. So it's an assessment of, of the child and their functioning uh, combined with a need to protect the community from danger. And you have to present your recommendations to the court. The kid's lawyer might want one thing, the prosecuting attorney might want another thing. And in forensics, someone is always happy with your recommendation and someone is always very unhappy with your recommendation. And that's true across the board. True in a divorce case, in a custody case, in a fitness for duty evaluation. You know, it's either going to be good or it's going to be bad. 
When he's interviewing someone in a court setting, it's usually to evaluate a person's competency. Competency to stand trial, competency to enter a plea, competency to waive having an attorney, things of that nature. The reason he's brought in to evaluate people is so the court's verdict isn't overturned on an appeal. Someone says, I, I don't want an attorney. I want to represent myself. Well, if you only have an IQ of like 68 or, or the, you, you come into the court and the court doesn't know if you're high on drugs or on, on or off your medication or even intellectually disabled, you know, the court wants to make sure that they're following the proper steps so that they don't get overturned on appeal that makes them look bad so so that's uh competency issues are very common referrals in forensic psychology what happens if they're not competent well it depends in, in different types of proceedings if you're not competent to stand trial in a criminal matter you could be committed to a psychiatric facility and then there are attempts to rehabilitate you to stabilize you to where you get to a level of competency that you could then come back to court and proceed. Otherwise, you can be committed to a psychiatric facility and the criminal charges are dismissed, but you could be held in the psychiatric facility. If you're a juvenile or an adult in family court and you're found not competent, you can be assigned a uh, what's called a guardian ad litem, which is separate from your lawyer. So you have a lawyer and another lawyer assigned to you to kind of act in, in a kind of parent role, kind of look out for your best interests. So there, there are different things that can happen. But to go through the court process in any court, in any jurisdiction, you need to be competent. It's a legally defined term. And if the court finds you're not competent in any way, then there are various decision trees that, that happen. Another setting where Dr. Bloom conducts these interviews is in jail, which is not his favorite. How often do you have to actually go and meet with someone who's incarcerated? The answer to your question is I try never to go to jail because I, jail freaks me out. And I don't want to go into jail even as the doctor. Was the first time that you did it, like, made you realize, like, this is not for me? Was there, there a specific was an instance? incident like that. Yeah, okay. I was interviewing for a position in, in the Westchester County jail system as the uh, director of psych services. And while I was there for an interview, I smelled something horrible. And, and they told me that uh, they're pretty sure it was a, a rat that was stuck in the ventilation system that was, you know, decaying. And then at, while they were explaining that to me, the alarms went off and like this, the jail SWAT team went into action and they carried this, took this guy out of his cell who was covered in his own feces. If that was it for me. I was Bye. like, this is not Goodbye. for me. I can't do yeah. this, you know. Totally. Not to say that that happens all the time. But it's just a very intense population and the environment's intense. And being a, you know, a family man with kids and I just didn't want to deal with that in my life every day and bring that home. So I just stayed away from there. So even on the rare occasions now where I go to do an evaluation, it's usually of a pretty uh, high functioning prisoner who either has an appeal uh, at stake or is asking me for a second opinion on a prior evaluation. So on occasion, on a case-by-case -case basis, I might uh, go to a, a jail setting to, to do an evaluation. I, try, I really try not to take those cases. 
Now, we're going to be mostly speaking about your private practice right. role. I did just want to ask about the two hats that you do wear mm-hmm. in your career. You're a full-time employee of the city agency, right. and then you'll obviously run your own private right. practice. What is it like switching back from both? How do you handle both gigs, yeah. really? Yeah, it's, it's a little tricky because you have to avoid conflicts of interest. So that's why my private practice take cases primarily out of Manhattan, Westchester, Putnam, Rockland, Connecticut, uh, and, and I accept referrals from federal uh, agencies. So anything that doesn't get trickled down to my position in, in the court clinic that I work at full-time is fair game for me to take privately. So you get a lot of cases from referrals. When is it that you would pass on a case? Yeah. What's your criteria on so, whether you would take it or not? So my private practice, I, I tend to get the majority of my referrals come from high-conflict divorce and custody disputes. So people are getting divorced in Supreme Court and can't figure out what to do with their kids, you know, when they're going to see the other parent, things like that. When parents can't figure that out, uh, the judge will usually uh, order a forensic evaluation. So I get a lot of those referrals, and th- there are many factors. One, how busy I am, how many cases I have open at the time, uh, how long I think it would take to complete them, what the payment is. There are different payment streams that come in. Some for indigent population, you know, the city and state might pay, and that's a lower rate. For wealth, some of the wealthy families, you set your own rate, and that could, you know, go up. I'd say the range that I'm, that I know of at this time is anywhere between three hundred an hour to up to, you know, eight hundred an hour. Depend, you know. So you're talking a really big spread here. Um, how many children are involved? How fast the court wants this done? Because these are big reports, they involve multiple, multiple evaluations, appointments, and fairly certain you're going to get called to testify. If you don't think you could handle testifying in court, don't become a forensic psychologist. If you can't write a report that will stand up to serious scrutiny, peer review, second opinions, don't, don't become a forensic psychologist. Back to the day. Speaking of writing reports, it's now 1130 in the morning and Dr. Bloom is reviewing emails and working on report and testimony preparation. When Dr. Bloom is referred a case or has a private client, he interviews people and takes detailed notes. What he's doing now on this day with his detailed notes is he types up a report for every party involved. Lawyers, judges, other psychologists who are brought in for a second opinion, etc. That's why he said, don't be a forensic psychologist if you're not willing to handle serious heat. He then has to testify his findings on the record in the court and field questions from lawyers on both sides. So how do you organize your thoughts and sessions to then translate to the report? I imagine you need extensive detail for these reports. So are you writing things word for word or? It is. It's a shorthand, but remember, it's fair game. It's going to be subpoenaed if you come into court. So they're going to get your notes. So, you know, I learned uh, the hard way not to, you know, write little uh, acronyms about people, you know. Oh, Dr. Bloom, what does uh, FLK mean, you know, in the margin of your notes? And, oh, my God, that, that meant funny-looking kid. You know? <laughs> like, 
don't write that, you know, don't write, don't write F-O-S, you know, full of shit, you know, oh my because gosh. it's going to come up. So, Interesting. So you, but you have to keep the, and it is, as much as you can verbatim. So I kind of take shorthand on my question because I know what that is. Like if I ask you, you know, how far do you go in school? You know, just, I just put grade and then I'll write your answer and I try to get it pretty verbatim because I may want to quote you in my report. And that's a very big issue in, in testimony. Well, is that, are those your words or is that what my client said to you? Say, mm. are, you para- are, you are you paraphrasing or did my client say that? Um, and, oh, can you, sh- do you have your notes with you? Can you show me? I say, oh, that's what you, your client, are you ever you- allowed to record? No, no recording. Most lawyers, most lawyers in in New York will oppose it unless they're present, and it just hampers the process. There are other forensic evaluations that are recorded, but not not the ones that I'm familiar. With. So, I, and it's and it's a debate whether they should be recorded or not. So, speaking of the reports, what's like? How do they like physically look? Is it just like a yeah. long? If they're you long. Look at no, it, they're the long. long yeah. essay, like, no, is no. It, like they're long structured fill reports. in the blank no, sort of no, thing. No, they're or, okay. completely. I mean, they they have a format, you know, like I described. So we cover areas. The, the first section of the report is the legal issue, the referral issue. You talk about what brought this person to court, why they're in your office, and then you have to describe every source of information that you're used for your report in detail. So can imagine if you get a file this thick and there's tons of records each one of those has to be kind of listed and summarized and then you have to describe the person's you know history development current functioning mental status substance abuse alcohol assessment of their parenting if they're a parent or assessment of their juvenile delinquency or has to be a risk assessment section because that's a key component to any evaluations what kind of risk does this person pose to either their child their spouse the community you know whatever and then your recommendations and conclusions so these reports can range from three pages to 50 pages, you know, on a cust- on a contested custody evaluation. I have colleagues that write 200-page reports, 300-page reports. I'm not a big report writer, so I tend to be more short and sweet or concise or however you want to say. I, I kind of try to not send in a, a huge report because I don't think that helps much. Who's going to read it? They're just going to skip to the end anyway and see what you recommended, Plus, it gives them more ammunition to use if they do bring you in to court. My reports tend to be, you know, between 10 and 25 pages, I would say. All the information's in my notes or in my head. I don't think that everything needs to go into the court report. So they're a set structure, but they're they're pretty um, intense. They're like single-spaced, you know, 11 font, typed up. It can't be spelling errors. You know, these are going to be held to a very high standard. Remember, if you're not happy with my report and and you have the means to do so, you're going to hire another psychologist to go over my report or to give give a rebuttal or a second opinion. Uh, Or if you're a party in a divorce who's not happy with my report and you have the means, you're going to bring me into court, have your lawyer cross-examine me, then maybe hire another psychologist to help the lawyer Rip, rip me apart in court the next day. There's spelling errors and you have the wrong name in there and 
there's, you know, glaring errors in it, you know, then they just, they could toss your report and then you're not going to get any more referrals from those attorneys or that judge. It's now 1 p.m. and it's time for lunch, but he's eating on the go because he has a court appearance at 1.30. I included this case because I hate to say it, but it's a pretty common issue in my business. So, and I'm not going to go into details because it's an actual case. So I'm just going to describe, you know, the experience. So this was uh, in a, a case that I've been working on where the uh, parents actually settled their divorce a number of years ago. And everything's been kind of going smoothly. And then all of a sudden, they come back to court a couple of years after their divorce with these fairly serious allegations where mom is saying that the older child now has a recovered memory of being sexually abused by the father. And mom is saying, well, given this, I only want the other kids to have supervised visits with the father. But none of this has been proven. They're all allegations. The older kid is uh, aged out already. They're not involved in the case anymore. They're the older kids in college. And now you have these younger children who have the set schedule with their father and a good relationship with their father. None of them are saying that they've been abused. But these allegations of sex abuse come up quite frequently in contested divorces and custody cases. And it's very hard for me as the uh, forensic psychologist to kind of, because everyone's looking for me to like look in my crystal ball and do my magic and figure out, well, is it true? Is it not true? Dad's never been arrested. There's never been any convictions of sex abuse, no findings of sex abuse, just going purely on allegations. But it can have Either way, it can have disastrous effects, right? Either way, you're going to limit the younger children's exposure to their father, who they have, there's been no problems with, or you're potentially exposing these younger children to what may be a sex abuser. So I had to do an evaluation on that case and testify on it as to what I would recommend going forward. So it was a very extensive evaluation, but I, I think it illustrates one of the problems in our field, like... On the one hand, it's very scientific. On the other hand, it's sometimes you just, you don't have a crystal ball. Can't predict future behavior, no matter how good of a psychologist you are. So it comes down to making what I think are the best recommendations that I could give to the court to help them resolve this case. Ultimately, it's comforting to me as the forensic psychologist to know that I'm not making these final decisions. The judge is making these decisions. I tell people that all the time. They make the decisions. I just report back my findings to the court, the pros, the cons, the the questions, the unanswered questions. In this particular case, I did recommend that the younger children continue the uh, plan that was in place, that was in the divorce judgment. Distinction for me in this case was that everything was alleged. There were no court findings of any inappropriate sexual behavior. So. These are things you kind of lay awake at night with, right? I was just going to ask that. Oh, my God, what what if I I, got it wrong? You know, like. I was just going to ask, like, have you've been doing this for 20 plus years now? Have you mastered, you think, like compartmentalizing? Yeah, I'm good at it, but there are still cases. I had one a couple weeks ago where children's services wanted to remove a newborn 
child from the parent. After a very rapid evaluation, I recommended that the child would be safe with the parent. But it was a Friday, and the case wasn't coming back to court till Monday afternoon. So, like, all weekend I was, like, thinking, like, God, I hope that baby's okay. Like, what if I got it wrong? Like, you know, things happen, right? And you, you have to com compartmentalize because otherwise... You just couldn't function, right? Because we see people at their worst and the worst possible crises that you can imagine. You kind of have to rely on your experience and your training and know that you did the most thorough evaluation that you can do and, and give your recommendations. You know, when I watch the news at night, I'm always like, oh my God, I hope I'm not getting that case tomorrow. It's 3 p.m. and court is adjourned. And Dr. Bloom heads back to his office to prepare for a presentation he's giving to an audience of other psychologists, attorneys, and judges about his proposed shift in the model of risk assessment evaluation. In other words, he's proposing the court should zero in on one thing that will help the forensic psychologists contribute to settling the case faster. He likes to go to events like this to learn from other disciplines and share his knowledge with the law community. The presentation was given an hour later and was well received by the judges, not so much by the lawyers. Like Dr. Bloom said, in this profession, it's almost impossible to please all parties. Now it's 5 p.m. and Dr. Bloom is preparing for evening hours, which he only has two nights a week. Today at 6 p.m., he's meeting with a person who is disqualified by the NYPD for an evaluation to appeal the disqualification. The majority of that, I, as I said, was either the matrimonial custody stuff or the subspecialties that are referred to me because of the, the diplomate status. So these are generally federal or law enforcement agencies that are referring to me either to evaluate people who are applying for jobs and have not passed the psychological evaluation on their end. So now they need to actually sit with a real life psychologist and be evaluated, or people who are employed but had some incident and now need to be cleared to return back to work. If the agency that hired Dr. Bloom to do these evaluations of their employees disagrees with the opinion, it could go to an administrative hearing where he could be called to testify on his opinion. It's now 7 p.m. and Dr. Bloom is performing a psychological test for the FAA air traffic control. All agencies have different protocols, which Dr. Bloom needs to be familiar with, but generally all evaluations to qualify someone to work at a federal, state, or county agency usually involves re-interviewing the person in question, reviewing their file, and a psych test. The most common type is a computerized personality assessment. But if you answer a series of questions that the general population would answer true, and you answer them false because you're trying to get this job, the, the, the tests pick that up, and then you come across as you're being deceptive or you're withholding or you're being guarded. And many people are disqualified for jobs because they came across as being deceptive or trying to present themselves in a way that's not realistic. And that's very important in, in law enforcement. And, you know, you can imagine for, like, if you're an air traffic controller, we need to know that you're not using drugs, you're not drinking too much, you're sleeping well, you're not hearing voices in your head. And there are specific tests that we might give to someone who, you know, may want to carry a gun in a law enforcement position. You know, you don't want someone who's 
very aggressive or easily excited or jittery or, you know, impulsive. So depending on the field, you might pick slightly different battery of, of computer assessments. All the assessments I give are on the computer. So you just experienced a day in the life of a board certified forensic psychologist, but how does one actually become a forensic psychologist, let alone board certified? In part two of the Psych on the Stand series, join us as we go through Dr. Adam Bloom's career journey and experiences leading up to where he is today. He started his psychology journey as a school psychologist working with elementary students, but needed a change of pace a couple of years after starting. Learn how he navigated this field of psychology so you can too. Stay tuned. At Experience a Day in the Life, we're building an online library of content all focused on a diddle or a day in the life of different jobs and professions across the world in all different industries. So if you want to share your a diddle, you can do so at xadiddle.com slash share dash my dash a diddle. That's x-a-d-i-t-l dot com slash share dash my dash a-d-i-t-l. Thanks for listening. Head over to exadiddle.com. That's X-A-D-I-T-L.com. There you can find the show notes for this series and more A Day in the Life articles. And you can get to know us and our guests more by joining our communities on social media. Follow at Xadiddle on Instagram and on LinkedIn by searching for Krista Poe and Matt with one T Poe. If you learned something in this episode, please take some time to help our mission by leaving a positive rating and review of the show. Each week, we bring you a new interview series with guests from different jobs and different industries. In each series, we'll live a specific day in the life, hour by hour, and experience their career journey. So don't forget to subscribe.